Good morning, Evergreen. It's good to see everyone. If you could open your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26, but I'm actually going to read just to verse 28 before flipping to chapter 2. And like Steve just said, I want to remind you of really why we're here. Why are we going back to the book of Genesis? It's because of how Jesus answered the Pharisees' question about divorce. When having a discussion that's so serious as is the topic of divorce, let me just tell you that I, I feel a lot of the weight of wanting to deal with it with pastoral sensitively, sensitivity while also giving you what God's word says. Because what God's word says is the truth about reality, about the way things work. And it also gives us the truth in a way that often offends us if we really grasp the reality of what the scripture is saying. And let me remind you again that what we're talking about when we look at how God has designed us male and female, as God has designed marriage, or even what allows for a permissible divorce or not. We're dealing with God's law and instruction. What we're not dealing with is how you are saved, how you're brought into a right relationship with God. If anything, what we're going to be looking at is how far short we fall of what God's standard is and what God's standard calls us to. And this is just something on my heart, not really connected with the service. But from the very first day I came back, I want you to know that I attended a funeral the very first day coming back from vacation. And I got a call that someone else went into the hospital. And I had a funeral this week, this past Thursday. So two funerals in one week. And then shortly after, I had another uh, member uh, <laughs> associated with the PCA who also went to the hospital, who was in critical condition. And I just want to remind you that when we're dealing with God's word, we're dealing with a serious matter. We're dealing with life and death issues. And when the Bible reveals our sin, we need to take it serious enough, the serious as God takes it, and that we would turn away from it and turn to him. Let's read and just listen to what God's word says about the institution of marriage, starting in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you'll flip over to chapter 2, starting in verse 15, we're going, zooming in once again on that first day, on this first couple. 
and we see verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to keep, to work it and keep it. And the Lord God, thank you. (laughs) And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a fit, a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had made had taken From the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, Oh, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, this passage bears repeating. This passage bears repeating because what we're getting at here is the origin of humanity as God designed them. And yes, as we talked about last week, God designed us in his image with value and dignity and also as male and female. And that being made male and female is for a distinct purpose. And we've kind of alluded to it last week, talking about the fact that the differences between men and women are created differences, not so that they could be different from each other, so much as they could be different for each other. There is in humanity, in the created order, the first thing that links them together, the similarities between men and women are obviously a lot greater than the differences. But the differences that exist are God's good created differences. And it's with a specific purpose. Men and women were designed for the purpose of uniting together in the institution of marriage. Obviously, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a man or a woman. But those confusions didn't start there. The confusion actually started, and the root of a lot of the problems we have is that people lost what the definition and what the meaning of the institution of marriage itself was. And it makes sense that if you lose the meaning of the definition of what the institution of marriage is, 
the, the next thing to go is the definition of what it means to be a male or a female. These two things are linked to one another. When the uh, Obergefell decision, which legalized and gave the same rights and privileges to homosexual couples as it does to heterosexual couples, when that legislation came out in 2015, there was a book that came out by Albert Moeller, which is a short one, and I think it's a very valuable book. Good books are made better when they're short books, by the way. Makes it easier to read. In that book, we cannot be silent. The whole book and the premise of it was defining what a Christian view of marriage is and why we cannot accommodate to any other definition. It's because the definition of marriage is not for grabs. It's not up to us. We don't get to decide it. No government can redefine it because marriage is a pre-political institution. And he, even in 2015, it was interesting. And after the um, chapter about the sexual revolution, he anticipated the transgender revolution that was to come in the next chapter and talked about how once we've redefined what the definition of marriage is, you've destroyed or just started to distort what it means to be basically a man and a woman. And his prediction came true, has it not? Now that distinction between men and women has resulted not only in confusion about an institution, but who we are as individuals. But the institution matters. Well, things going on now. Um, what we're going to look at this morning and how I want to frame this is looking at mainly chapter two and looking at if the first sermon in this series was designed by God, humanity designed by God. Now we're going to look at defined by God, the institution of marriage as it's defined by God. <laughs> and the first thing to look at when we see this is it's defined by a pairing, that the institution of marriage is defined by a pairing. If you'll look at verse 18, it's the first time that, at, that God sees and calls something not good in his creation. And what is he reflecting on? He's reflecting on the fact that the man he made was alone. And his God's determined effort at that point was to make a helper fit for him. See, when God, when man went through all creation, he had this exercise then that was portrayed out in verse 19. When God had determined that he was going to make a helper for him, the first thing he did was he had man look at the rest of creation and see how inadequate anything else was to cure his loneliness. And not only to cure his loneliness, but also to help him, assist him in the accomplishing of his mission. You know, it's kind of interesting that God made Adam first, set him in the garden, and he had this command to be fruitful and multiply, to work the garden to fill it. 
how was man ever to accomplish that task? Well, he couldn't do it by himself. He needed a helper fit for him. And Eve was that helper. I think the first thing to note in this pairing that happens between men and women and why Eve was created is we might think of a helper as someone who's less than, maybe even an assistant to the real job that the man was doing, working and tilling the garden. But that's not how the word helper is used throughout the Old Testament. The main individual that the word helper is applied to throughout the Old Testament is to God himself. In reflecting on God being our help and our strength, do you see to help someone and be able to have in that position, be in that position, is you have to be able to help someone from a position of strength. You know, if a teacher is going to be helpful for their students, they're going to have to be able to have a knowledge base that they can pull off and pull from that strength to assist and help their students. This is not a helping relationship in which one is superior than the other, but of equal value and dignity, equal, don't have another word than value and dignity, equal value, but yet they have a complementary patterning designed to them in which they are to be of help to one another. Helping Adam in his task of ruling the garden, she then has more of the responsibility, though, of filling and multiplying by her very biology. And she's taken from his rib. You see, the rest of creation, as he went through and looked at every single creature of God's creation, nothing else was made in the image of God. Nothing else could help him and assist him in reflecting God's glory. What he needed was a fellow image bearer to assist in this task. So she was taken from that image bearer. And she was taken from the man. I apologize. And made and brought to him. And he recognizes her. And it's the, the first word here is not actually in the ESV in, at verse 23, because the verse word that he says is, oh, oh, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At this point, when we're looking at this fit helper, And the immediate afterwards in verse 24, where Moses says that this is the reason why this moment, looking at this prototypical pairing between a man and a woman is the definition of how the institution of marriage came to be. We have to realize that the fact that this maleness and this femaleness is not incidental. It's not a coincidence. And we know that, if anything, from what Steve read in Mark chapter 10 at verse 6, right before the institution of marriage was read in Genesis 2.24, Jesus quoted Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, saying, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This pairing, there's a reason why, and actually I found the definition after I chose the word for pairing. A pair is a single thing made up of two corresponding parts that must be used together. Think of a pair of scissors, two blades united together that is absolutely necessary for the task of cutting paper. One blade by itself does not accomplish the task. You need the pair. And once the pair comes together in a bond, it is actually functional, actually able to complete the task in front of it. Those differences that we talked about last week between men and women, biological differences is not incidental. (coughs) See, (coughs) by definition, this pairing is defined by male and female-ness, biological reality here. And when in 2015, the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage, I want you to know that it did not change the definition of what marriage actually is. What it created was a legal fiction, a lie. And there's others out there. You can have red circles, you can have green circles, but you know what you can't have is square circles. Square circles are not a thing. It's wrong by definition. Circles don't have corners. And if a square does not have any corners, it's not a square. And this is not to be rude. This is not to be mean. It's just to say that by very definition of the thing that we're talking about, that the definition matters. The complementariness of men and women matters. And it's not just for homosexual couples. There's other things and ways that marriage has been redefined throughout human history that has distorted what marriage is. It's this, so marriage is a pairing and men and women biologically fitting together and complementing each other is absolutely essential to this. And this should be self-evident to us from nature. There's a reason why I have this hang-up on biology. It's because biology matters because it was designed by God himself. First Timothy chapter 4 speaks to this. Paul warned us that there would be people who would depart from the faith, devoting themselves to dispute deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through insincere through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food now listen to this why is it wrong and why is it the teaching of demons to forbid people from getting married or to forbid food because verse 3 god created them to be f- Received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God 
is good. Did you hear that? Everything created by God is good. You see, when we're talking about this, the reason why this is something that we cannot be silent about is because when we deny our male and femaleness, we're denying the goodness of God's creation as he created it. Yes, our bodies have been corrupted by the fall. We know that because we all die. We all get sick. We all have different diseases. But the fact that God made us, the fact that we are in God's image, those things remain. And those biological differences are marks of God's ingenuity, of God's kindness, of God's intellect, of God's pairing. And we don't have a right to redefine marriage as much as we don't have the right to say that there are square circles out in this world. And it's not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to be honest with what the Bible says of how things are. And you know, on this point, it might be uh, appealing to natural law. We might go different routes of trying to argue against maybe gay marriage or other forms of marriage and saying how it hurts people, how it hurts families, how it hurts children, and all those things are true. But fundamentally, for the Christian, the reason why we define marriage the way that we do as between a male and a woman is because it's out of obedience to God's word as he revealed it. You see, part of the Christian life is believing God and taking him at his word. And when we think that we can take something and give a different meaning or say that the institution of marriage as God gave it is not something that's good, we're insulting the creator himself. But that's not the only way that we redefine marriage, and that's not the only thing that we that makes people married, is not just this pairing. It's also this meaning <coughs> that's found in an equation. The second blank on your bulletins, the meaning that's found in an equation. See, there's, there's this equation that we are presented with when we look at this. We see in verse 24 that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus, when he, <coughs> when he quotes this in Mark chapter 10, he says that the two became one. So we have this interesting equation that one man plus one woman equals one flesh. You know, the very first distortion of the definition of marriage had nothing to do with homosexuality. The very first distortion that we see in scripture has to do with polygamy having multiple spouses, not just having one man with one woman, but one man with two women. Genesis chapter four, verse six. We see that Lamech took to himself, or rather verse uh, 19. We see that Lamech took to himself two wives and he boasts in this. And he boasts in also committing the same sin that Cain did 
in murdering people. It didn't take humanity too long to distort the definition of marriage and to get away from the institution as God created it between one man and one woman. And this is so important because while the Pharisees tried to start off and looking at marriage by seeing how they could get out of it and talking about divorce, Jesus kind of dismissed that conversation and said, if we're going to talk about what is it, what is a legitimate divorce, we have to first go back to the very beginning and look at how God created the institution of marriage. And I think this also helps us to be better readers of our Bible. Has it ever caused you pause pause or trouble when you're reading through your Bible and you see how many of the Old Testament saints have practiced polygamy? We see that with Abraham. We see that with David, a man after God's own heart. We see that with Solomon. We see that with all the 12 patriarchs. We see that with so many people in the Old Testament. This helps us to be better readers of our Bibles because we have to realize that when we're reading the Bible, we're reading the history of sinners who are saved by grace. And while there are lots of complexity in dealing with those particular situations, and why exactly God overlooked their hardness of heart in this one particular area, But we have to realize and do exactly what Jesus did when we come across things like this in Scripture. When we come across things in a narrative, and it seems like God is approving of men having multiple wives. What do we do with that? Well, I think it's probably maybe a cliche Christian answer to say, let's do what Jesus did. We need to go back and say, wait one second. How did God define the institution of marriage well between one man and one woman that's it any other manipulation of that equation gets you to the wrong definition and while we might struggle over some of the narrative and exactly how we view those old testament saints aren't you glad too that god often overlooks the hardness of our own hearts, the areas where we sin and don't even recognize it, where we're imitating our culture, imbibing of their definitions of how to live. Aren't you so great? Aren't you so thankful that God is gracious with us and patient with us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? But monogamy there is not the only thing, not the only aspect of this equation. The other aspect of it is that (coughs) these two becoming one. But what kind of one are they? Well, we get it if we look at those two words there. We see that marriage appears in a threefold leading up to this. We see that the man leaves his father, if you see that in verse 24, and his mother holds fast and leaves his father and mother and holds fast, not to his mother. You don't want to do that. That's a bad recipe for 
marriage. You want to hold fast to your wife. I have a good relationship with my family, I promise. But that leaving there is marking a decisive establishment of a new social unit. The cleaving, if it was before a decisive leave, is the exhibiting of a strong commitment to the new relationship so that the two become one. <clears throat> the what exactly means that the man and woman are one flesh? Well, it's pretty comprehensive. For starters, there is a sense in which I'm not going to describe this any further, which biologically the two fit back together. The rib that was removed from Adam, the man, is restored to Adam's own body, his own flesh, when they unite together, Adam and Eve, back in the bonds of marriage. And biologically, they fit together. But there's also a social bond that's happening here. <clears throat> and we see that by the fact that he left his parents and he's leaving, entering into and cleaving towards his wife. <clears throat> this is a, a bodily as well as an emotional and spiritual bond. That's what the thing that distinguishes it is its absolute comprehensiveness. And you see that actually in a married couple if you follow them over the years, that people who spend time together constantly start to look alike. They start to think alike. They start to act alike. That one fleshness and the comprehensiveness of that is often seen and experienced and isn't precisely defined here. You know, <clears throat> in the redefinition of men and women, in the redefinition of marriage, sometimes we go too far. Sometimes we go too far in saying that this is not a social construct, marriage. And it's not a social construct in the sense that it's not merely a social construct. We have to admit that our view of marriage is oftentimes is based on what's going on in the culture. But the point here is to say that when we are denying that it's a social construct, is to say that it's not merely one. That this is not some arbitrary institution that someone just made up. That the uniting of this pair is one <coughs> which is created by God Himself. And this social aspect is not one that was just engineered as useful in humanity. It's not merely just a piece of paper that you get. It's real companionship. It's real cohabitation, leaving and cleaving. It's real conjugal love that's between a man and a woman. When we get to this, we see that this purpose in making men and women and pairing them together 
has <coughs> multiple purposes in this one fleshness. First, it helps in this mutual, uh, this mutual help of husband and wife with one another. That it's for the, and this is uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. This is chapter 24. That it's for the mutual help. It's for the increase of mankind with legitimate uh, posterity. It's for to supply the church with the holy seed. And it's also for preventing uncleanness. <clears throat> that all these purposes in this whole institution that was a social construct that was constructed by God himself has multiple uses. You know, there's sometimes people debate between whether or not they should get married and they want to serve the Lord and they don't know if that, that this institution is for them. Well, sometimes we just think of the desire of having children as being that, uh, trying to assess that, whether you should get married or not. But I think there's, there's multiple reasons here to think through this. The, re, the impetus between Adam getting a wife in the first place was that, verse 18, that it wasn't good that he was alone. Realize that if you're committing yourself to singleness or you're trying to discern whether or not you should get married, Discern whether or not it's okay, whether you're okay being alone, whether you want the blessings of cohabitation with another human being, a spouse who you are united with, whether you want conjugal love, and yes, procreation itself. The other way that this one flesh union is expressed is procreation. What the generative power that's created and designed by God in this institution. And procreation is not just a mandate that was given to Adam and Eve. It was reiterated in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, after the flood, that Noah was to be fruitful and multiply. It was reiterated to Jacob in Genesis 35, verse 11, as he gave him the command to be fruitful and multiply in fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. And while, of course, the processes of conception and birth ultimately are in God's hands, it's still the normal normative responsibility and the natural hope of a marriage. Marriages that are providentially without children are not blessing less they still have the bonds of marriage they still have the love that they have between one another and the partnership children in this sense because the institution of marriage is established by the unity of this man and woman to as one flesh children here are not the establishment of the family but is an added blessing that comes So there's an equation that gives meaning to marriage. The equation is one man plus one woman equals one flesh. Joined together as a comprehensive unit. The meaning of marriage is true whether children come or not. The meaning of marriage 
is one that is an essential pairing of those two together. And lastly, the meaning of marriage is found in the permanence of this union. The meaning of marriage is found in the permanence of this union. This is actually something that is told to us by Jesus himself as an implication of what is being taught here. What Jesus notes here is who is joining the two to become one flesh. He's noting who created the pair to fit together with one another. And in verse 9 of Mark chapter 10, he says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, even in America, we don't have to go back to 2015 to see marriage being redefined. Marriage was already redefined in no-fault divorce. In the 70s, when the state of California, or the, rather the 80s, when the state of California was the first state to legislate no-fault divorce, and that legislation then spread throughout the country, actually the last state to establish no-fault fault divorce was in 2010 in New York, ironically. The definition of marriage had already been undone. Jesus defines marriage when he goes to the beginning and says male and female. When he says this one flesh union, he also says that an equal part of this <coughs> definition is that to recognize that it's God joining a man and a woman together and that we have no right to separate it. See, that has to be the place that we start before we start talking about the issue of divorce. It has to be. We have to come to the place of realizing that this is the normative and that if divorce happens, it has to be an extreme case. It has to be so bad that it has totally corrupted the covenant that has put together one man and one woman. Malachi 2, chapter 2, verse 13, actually is a really helpful place to go on this point. Malachi 2, verse 13, God is talking to his people and he says, the second thing you do that's causing God anger, <clears throat> you cover the altar with your tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings and accepts it with favor from your hand, that is God. But you say, why does he not? Verse 14, because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she <clears throat> is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You see, Malachi saw the direct implication, the same one that Jesus saw. That voiding this 
dismissing your wife and thinking that this is just some contract which you can break at any time nullifies the definition of marriage, specifically as a covenant. You see, when no-fault divorce came into the legislative code of America, marriage was redefined to be on the basis of our own emotional satisfaction rather than an objective status. This is from Albert Muller's book. Culture has largely redefined the notion of companion marriage and instead embraced a eros or romantic love as the sum and substance of the marriage relationship. The Bible includes these categories, yes, but they're not at its absolute fundamental root. (laughs) Instead, (laughs) the Bible defines marriage in terms of the sanctity of the vow, of the permanence of the institution, and as one God's most great, one of God's most gracious gifts to his human creatures, and not just the product of social evolution. You see, when we shift the definition of marriage to be based on our feelings and to be based on the intensity of our love for our spouse, now, while no one is saying that you should not intensely love your spouse. But if that becomes the definition of marriage, there's no reason why it couldn't apply to any other two people or set of three people, or really the possibilities are limitless. Heck, you could go and marry your dog, depending obviously upon the intensity of the love that you have for your dog. But however you define it, or rather redefine it, whatever thing you have, it's not the institution of marriage. And this should be naturally evident to us because children do not proceed from it and do not even possibly proceed from it. Romans 1 describes this situation. Romans 1 says, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And what did God give them over to as evidence of them rejecting God and rejecting his definitions? That he gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He gave them over to dishonorable passions that they had lust inflamed for one another, male to male, female to female, and not, and which is, contrary to nature. The contrary to nature part of it, though, is the redefining of God's word, compromising what God says about it. The end of the matter is we don't have any right to redefine any part of God's law. You know, (coughs) Jesus Bless the institution of marriage. You know, the very first miracle that he performed was in John chapter 2, and he provided wine, alcohol, for a wedding in celebration of a man coming together with a woman. And in talking about this, I know that we're, we're oftentimes struck with, and this will be even more so next week, the fact of how we don't keep up, we don't hold up to God's law. Maybe you haven't kept with 
you know someone who hasn't kept the male-female part and has re redefined it and has distanced themselves from Christianity on account of that, feeling that they have sinned and fallen too far from God's glory from God to be able to redeem them, or at least that's what they think the Bible says, or that they've disrupted the last part there, the permanency of marriage, and have wrongfully divorced a spouse. You know, we have to, as Christians at this point, hold the balance. We want to affirm what God's word says while also showing compassion to the sinner to ensure them that if they turn from their sins, there is no sin that you can commit that's so unforgivable that God won't forgive you if you turn to him and trust in him with repentance and faith. We see this in John chapter 4. Jesus said to the um, woman, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. You see how Jesus dealt with that? He told her the truth of her situation, and he exposed the sin that she was in. But notice that Jesus' response to this was not one of rejection of her, but he called her to repentance and faith upon revealing her sin. And her response was not one of taking offense and running off because Jesus had called her a sinner and exposed her sin. <clears throat> but rather, verse 39, she ran into the town, told everyone, and the town believed because of the, the woman's testimony that he, did, he told me all that I ever did so that when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay where he was two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. There is no sin that is so grievous, no redefining of any of God's terms, that if repented of in turning to the Savior, Jesus will not forgive you. But on our end, we have to be careful that we don't get so offended at being called a sinner that we run away from God and reject his offer of grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've, give us you've given us instructions in your word, that you've shown us how you've made us, <clears throat> how you've made humanity to flourish, the goodness of your creation and all that it does. But Lord, when we look at your law, we often see that how far short we've fallen. And Lord, that's a good thing. When we look at your law, we should have our sins exposed. We should see our need for a Savior. And I thank you that you have shown this. And as you point it, the law's sharp, exacting finger at our problems, and when we see that the problem is found in our own heart, in our own desires, in our own feelings, in our own actions, we, thank, we are so thankful that you've revealed to us the love of God in Christ, who offers us 
forgiveness and that every sinner who turns to him has no fear of being rejected, but has the promise of God's grace. And Lord, for that matter, when we have, whenever we have sin exposed to us, our own personal sin brought to light, may we never be driven to despair. But may the convicting power of the law be used by the Holy Spirit to drive us to Christ. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we're going to respond to God's word by 